0: Welcome to Talking Materials Handling. In each episode, you'll hear from the thought leaders who are shaping what happens inside the four walls of the distribution center. We'll cover the gamut, from automation and robots to software and the next-gen technologies that are enabling the workforce of tomorrow. This podcast is hosted by Bob Troublecock, the executive editor of Modern Materials Handling. Remember that Bob welcomes your comments now To today's episode. Well, hello and welcome to today's episode of Talking Materials Handling, Decarbonizing the Supply Chain. I'm Bob Troublecock and joining me today is Dave Tuttle. Dave is a Vice President of Sustainability Solutions for Breakthrough. Dave, welcome.
1: Hey, Bob. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate you inviting me to the podcast and excited to talk about sustainability.
0: Well, I'm excited as well. You and I had a really great conversation uh, at Gartner. And, uh, you know, the one thing you always worry about is did you leave it all on the field at Gartner when you were just BSing? But uh, sure. you know, we're going we're to try and recreate that on this episode because I think it's an important topic. So I'm going to do something a little different. You know, my listeners know uh, me as the warehouse guy, and typically I've got guests on to talk about what happens inside the Forest of the water, uh, Warehouse. Dave and I are going to go outside into the world of transportation today, so a little different. Specifically, we're going to talk about sustainability, one of the hottest topics in supply chain, and some strategies for decarbonizing transportation. So, Dave, let's get started. First, for listeners who aren't familiar with Breakthrough, just tell us briefly a little bit about the company.
1: Sure. So Breakthrough is a transportation solutions provider. Uh, been doing that type of work for seventeen years, supporting uh, shippers in their journey to uh, you know manage costs, optimize their transportation management approach, um, and now really work on carbon footprint or sustainability in the way that they manage or utilize transportation. We're part of the US Venture family, uh, an organization that's been around for 70 years, servicing customers in a variety of, of spaces. So a really storied history there. Um, and you know, I think now we're really focused on technology and solutions and helping our customers meet their goals. And like I said, that could be sustainability, transportation, transportation optimization, um, all those things. So uh, really interesting company lots of interesting tools and solutions. And so uh,
0: excited to share a little bit more about what we're doing there. Well, great. Well, so this is a little different uh, for another reason, which is I typically don't have solution providers on as guests. And Dave isn't really here. We want to tell you a little bit about Breakthrough, but we're not really here to, to promote Breakthrough, but rather from where he sits, he sees a lot of what companies are trying to accomplish today. And I get a lot of emails from companies that want to talk about their 2030, 2035, and even 2050 goals. Um, So Dave, has sustainability finally risen to the top of the agenda? You know, for many years, it was kind of a marketing tool, but it feels as if it's a real thing now. And if that's the case, why is it a supply chain issue? Why do we care?
1: Yeah. And I mean, that's a great, it's a great question. Right. And I think the one thing to know is look, I come from the supply chain space. I come from the distribution space. So I've seen sort of all those different pieces and, and been on that same journey you've been on Bob, where people have been talking about it. Sometimes it's a sustainability is a thing we use to position with the market. I think we're at the point now where we're getting so close to 2030. Right. Um, and, and so some of these things are really becoming real for a lot of companies and they're saying, boy, um, I've made these commitments or I see a number of my peers or the companies that um, are sort of setting the pace in the industry, making these commitments. And so how does this impact me? Right. And sort of the way we look at it is it is really becoming part of the way organizations are solutioning or traditionally. You know, even thinking about my, historically, the world I came from, you look at cost, capacity and service, and those are the main drivers. Um, it does seem like sustainability is becoming a primary driver. And I think it's important just from the standpoint of, look, generally speaking, the consumer does care, right? We've, we've seen that consumers care about this. It's a space that many of them are interested in. And how are the companies that they're buying or working with um, looking at sustainability? Uh, beyond that, um, I think from the standpoint of many of these companies have set goals, right? And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But um, And they're saying, boy, I'm looking at 2030. I need to figure out uh, how do I actually hit these goals? How do I make this real in my business? And, and then align to a lot of the initiatives that are coming out of not just the US, but Europe and other, other countries. So I think that's making it more real for everyone.
0: One of the things i wondered, um, this is a little off script, but one of the things I wondered, um, you know, we've got privately and publicly held companies, you know, across the spectrum. Um, and then we have domestic and global companies, domestic meaning, you know, maybe all of their businesses in North America or all of their businesses in U.S. versus global companies. And I just wondered from companies that you're talking to, uh, you know, two things. One, is it more... <clears throat> a publicly held company versus privately held company phenomenon? Because, you know, publicly held companies have to report to shareholders and investors. And second, is it more global than domestic? And what I mean is, you know, you just referenced what's happening, not just in the U.S., but outside of the U.S. And if you're a global company, my sense has always been, you don't want to operate one way in the U.S. and another way in Europe and, you know, another way in Asia, uh, unless there are things that are really specifically tailored to that market. You want to have a global platform. So I just wondered what you're seeing out there when you think about the diversity of company types.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, from a public-private standpoint, I, I don't necessarily think that that's the the primary driver um, you know, just thinking about that, and if I think about the companies that we're talking to and speaking with, certainly, um, I would say the vast majority are public companies, but uh, a number of private companies as well. Um, but I do think your point around, <clears throat> excuse me, the the global piece companies do want to have a single strategy. Um, they, they it gets really complicated for for something that is already probably complicated in, in its own right. Um, it gets really complicated when your strategy varies, you know, country by country, region by region, especially when you're working heavily in those different regions. So I do think that that's a big deal. I think we see a lot of companies that do a lot of work in Europe. Europe is probably leading the charge from a sustainability standpoint. So if I'm if I'm an organization that does a lot of work in Europe, why would I not want to just carry that same approach over? Um, to the other regions that I'm working in, the United States, um, have a single focused approach to how we're going to manage this. Um, so I do think that that's a big driver and a big part of what we're seeing happen and the change we're seeing in the U.S. To be honest with you.
0: And do you think in the U.S., you know, the the, the companies that are domestic, they're not doing business globally or doing limited business globally, but they're often suppliers into the global companies. So are they being dragged along? By their larger customers, who might be asking questions about, you know, what's your sustainability strategy, or what are you doing?
1: One hundred percent, one hundred percent. There, you know, you certainly see this pressure um, for a lot of companies that are, yeah, they're selling into larger conglomerates that are global. Those companies are looking at them as potentially a contributor to their, you know, their emissions profile could be their scope three emissions, right? Um, and saying, "Hey, how are you managing this um, as a as a partner of mine, as a supplier of mine?" So, exactly, even if they are domestically focused or 100% focused in the U.S., they are one way or another, or could be having an impact on, on these other uh, suppliers who or or vendors who are working globally. So, yes, that certainly has an influence and is influencing a number of these folks who are looking
0: to drive the sustainability. I, I'm glad you mentioned the scopes. I'm going to come back to that a little bit later, but that was, that. was that's a good little thing to put in the minds of listeners that we're going to get to uh, closer to the end of the podcast. All right. So, you know, I was getting press releases about 2030, 2035 emissions, actually I've been getting them, you know, for the last couple of years. And as you mentioned, we're getting closer. So the thing that I have noticed differently this year, you know, in press releases and in conversations is this concept called science-based targets for emissions reduction. So, one, can you tell us what those are, you know, why they're important, and why we're now seeing that in, you know, press releases and conversations?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the easy way of explaining it is these are really targets that provide a pathway, um, a clear pathway for companies to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, right? Uh, many times referred to as SBTIs, right, science-based target initiative. Um, and and it's really about aligning to this Paris Agreement, right, and the goals of the Paris Agreement and making sure that pe- that organizations can have a clear line of sight to these are the things I can do to meet these goals. The other big thing about science-based targets is it's consistent, right? It's it's based on an accord, it's credible, it's accountable, it creates transparency, everyone's working to the same target. Um, so that's the, the key there and how those are being utilized. And, and look, there are um, certainly nuances and you know, that's why even you know, me as a solution guy who's trying to help people, uh, you know, enable people to go and do the things they need to do to hit their goals, um, we lean hard into to research and uh, analysts as well on these things because they're they are there's a there's a lot to it and it it has become uh, and many times you know you got a nuance between the buzz versus what's actually focused on science based targets.
0: Hey Dave. Since since the uh, science based target initiatives are tied to you know the Paris Accord, is there a central body or a or a, an organization? you know, that monitors this or people, you know, turn to, uh, for guidance?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, the nice thing is you can go out to, um, the science based targets.org. Right. And yeah, there's a, there's a ton of detail there and it really takes you through, um, all the, the details on the science based targets, who, you know, who the body is, why they were created, um, and and how you can get engaged, right? If you want to set your targets, uh, how you get those targets validated,
0: that that is the place to go.
1: That's that's the that's the best place for information right out of the gate.
0: Um, in a minute here, I want to talk to you about some strategies. But before I get there, just one last question along these other lines, and that's certifications. So again, you know, like if I think of um, you know, entertainment on streaming services, right? There's a streaming service for every niche, whatever you're into. And um, I've started noticing again that, you know, people are certified here, certified there, certified there. And and to me, uh, you know, as somebody who covers this space, it's all a little bit confusing. So what's going on in certifications? You know, how important are they? And then from a transportation perspective, what's important?
1: Yeah, so look... There are a number of different certifications, right? And you know, from my perception, a number of organizations out there that are trying to help drive, or, or you could say, capitalize on the changes that are occurring in the sustainability space. From our focus, we've looked at and are, are very focused on GLEC, right? That's the Global Logistics Emission Council. Um, it's run by the Smart Freight Center. And going back to our earlier point, this they're you know they're European based organization. They've led the charge and, and are very uh, well accepted in the European market, which is sort of led in sustainability. And now we see them pacing here in the U.S. and a number of organizations saying, yeah, the GLEC framework uh, is the right framework, is the right certification body, uh, especially in the transportation space. Because the reality is, Bob, there, there are so many different Organizations out there, there are so many different um, people trying to influence the space. Um, we tried to lean into what is the what is the organization that's having the most success and or most widely accepted in those places that are leading, and that's where GALAC and Smart Freight Center sort of um, bubbled up to the top for us. And you can see with a number of transportation companies, they are they're adopting these same standards.
0: Um- Let's talk a little bit about strategies, because this is one of the things that you and I talked about, Gartner, that I found fascinating, in part because, you know, it was kind of like three pillars or three strategies, but they created a framework. And um, so I wanted to walk through that framework with you uh, and how you think about it. So the first was, and again, we're talking about transportation, right? We're not talking about solar power, uh, you know, for your warehouse. So the first is mode optimization. So what is it?
1: So mode optimization is just looking at your transportation network, right? And determining what the best way to move the product is from a sustainability standpoint, right? So that may be, and and this is something that has been going on for a long time with a focus on cost, right? But that may be saying, Hey, maybe I can move to rail um, for a number of these cross country moves from truck. And rail has a significantly lower carbon footprint than a truck move. Um, And that's really what embodies mode optimization. Where can I change into a different mode um, to impact my carbon footprint? And I look at mode optimization and it's, it's one of the things that a number of our clients and you'll see a number of shippers have been looking at as a great opportunity to you know, lower have an immediate impact. There's, there's, uh, it's common. It's something they've done for a number of years. People have switched between truck and rail and other various modes. Um, so it's not, it's not a um, you know revolutionary thing, right? So that's why we love to first kind of lean into that mode optimization piece and say, okay, where, where can we make those changes and potentially have an impact.
0: Along that on the mode optimization, as we've gotten through you know, the real disruptions that we were going through during um, COVID, when it seemed like nothing was reliable, whether it was you know, rail or truck or ship, um, to perhaps more reliability and perhaps more capacity, is that making it you know, easier for people to develop more sophisticated strategies around mode? I think it's, it's
1: making the conversation easier. The reality is, um, you know, people have moved away from, to your point, you know, rail took a a pretty significant hit through COVID. I think people are still, there's still um, a tad bit of nervousness around um, service. uh, And also just once you make a change, I think one of the things about transportation is, you know, when a change or a shift happens, like even when we saw goods shift from the West Coast to the East Coast, it, in my opinion, or in my mind, it happens fast. The change happens fast. It's really slow to go back to something else. So I do think... Sorry, go ahead.
0: Oh, no, 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 I was saying, oh, that was... I, I wasn't aware of that.
1: Yeah, and then I do think... Um, but I do think now we're getting to a place where service is stabilizing, and people are really looking at cost as well, right? Um, as, as the market changes, so a lot of times these move these shifts from, um, you know, over the road or truck to rail can can be a net positive. Now they're, you know, we're realistic when we talk to the clients about this. And, and honestly, transportation uh, gurus out there working for their organizations know this. There's an inventory impact. There's a service impact. Um, there can even be there are other things, variables that have to be considered. But I do think the reality is service is getting back to a place. Capacity is getting to a place. Um, where it is making these more feasible. And then with this whole idea of sustainability um, and carbon footprint, really taking a more front and center part in the optimization model um, that is pushing this more and more too.
0: Uh, So that's a great segue to talk about alternative fuels. I can't remember if you were at manifest or not, but um, one of the things I was fascinated was, you know, you hear about autonomous vehicles, autonomous vehicles, Means electric vehicles, right? It's not going to autonomously stop and fill up the tank. Um, and you've got, uh, you know, changes coming in California that's going to impact how people are looking at. So there's a lot of talk around alternative fuels. Um, what I wondered is, well, what are the options out there, and more importantly, you know, what's ready for prime time, and what are the pros and cons associated with them? You know, what what isn't ready, and and maybe what's coming.
1: No, I think it's it's interesting, right? Because a lot of times when we have conversations with people, uh, and I wasn't at Manifest, but now I'm, now I'm wishing I would have been there. Uh, it, it A lot of times, the electric vehicles um, are hitting the, the headlines, right? And they, they have a lot of the discussion for good reason. It's exciting technology. Um, I think it's definitely going to change the way the market goes. But in the meantime, uh, right now, electric vehicles, you know, are only going 200, maybe 300 miles, right? And and that's, that's changing every single day. But the reality is when you're moving product, the demands um, far outstretch that, right? So we look at things like renewable natural gas, RNG, which is, um, you know, CNG uh, alternative. It's just a renewable version of compressed natural gas. Um, and then we have renewable diesels. Uh, as certainly as two alternatives that are available right now, renewable diesel is big in the California market. Uh, we're seeing that that renewable diesel is being blended heavily in California, will continue to grow there based on incentives. Uh, renewable is a drop in fuel with a far lower carbon footprint than ultra low sulfur diesel. So, you know, the, they'll, we believe they'll continue to be use of renewable diesel and it will become more available throughout the United States now depending on the incentives, sometimes it can be very expensive um, outside of some of the states where it is highly incentivized. Um, and then renewable natural gas, you know, CNG-based trucks, um, you know, they have, they've, they have um, had quite a resurgence. We saw at the ACT Expo, there was a lot of talk about CNG um, utilization. Now it has its limitations too from a distance standpoint, but there are a number of, uh, manufacturers who are working in the space in the cng space bringing new technology to that space and so rng has a much lower um, carbon footprint than your standard diesel fuel and then of course you know you have electric which has it which it continues to expand and quite honestly like if we look at california and we look at some states with heavy travel there you can you can heavily utilize um, electric vehicles or vehicles with low distance parameters, because you just have so many shuttles, you have dray moves. There are a lot of moves that can be be put into those different types of equipment. Um, Of course, you know, we've been talking about hydrogen for a long time. Um, I always joke, like my first internship a long, long time ago, we were doing research on hydrogen and, um, you know, that, but now it seems to be, it's becoming more of a reality. It's a fuel that it's still got a long journey, in my opinion. But nonetheless, in the near future, I think renewable diesel, renewable natural gas, um, combined with electric, uh, will continue. Will have a significant impact uh, for a number of, of shippers and, and will get more and more utilization.
0: Uh, the last strategy is network optimization. So, th- distinguish that from mode optimization.
1: So, to me, network optimization is really thinking about the distance a good has to travel in order to get to whoever the end consumer is, whether you're going to a store or you know it could be a raw material going to a manufacturing location, but it's really about miles traveled for that good. I mean, the reality is no matter what type of fuel you use or vehicle, if that product can travel less miles, immediately the carbon footprint is lower. And so we see a lot of um, you know, a lot of these organizations and companies that are moving goods are just saying, "Hey, how do I move? How do I move this thing fewer miles?" And we can see it too. Right? You can. It's you know nearshoring, onshoring, all these things that have been talked about extensively. Um, all those changes to shift closer to the consumer. Immediately, the 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 shorter that distance goes, the the more optimized that movement of good is. Uh, the more optimized your carbon footprint is. So it's just a natural win.
0: Last question. So you, you touched on, you know, the, the different scopes, scope one, scope two, scope three emissions. Um, here's one of the things I wondered. I, I did a, a call with um, the VP of sustainability at Walmart. And uh, at the time, what we were talking about was Walmart had um, rolled out a purchase power agreement uh, for its suppliers, which made it uh, you know easy for their suppliers to purchase uh, renewable energy for their operations. And what what I found interesting is, um, I don't know exactly how many um, suppliers Walmart has, but you know, it's over 10,000, probably 20,000. And they had sent out um, a letter asking for suppliers, were they interested just in getting information about renewables, not in participating in the program. Um, My math might be off here because it's been a while since I did it, but it was either 2,000 or 4,000. My point was, it was a fraction of the overall supply base. And then ultimately, they started in the purchase power agreement with five. Um, So, you know, that's their suppliers. Now we're talking about the outside of Walmart's control their scope three. And the reality was that even at a company like Walmart that's doing great things you know, over its facilities and things it has control over, working on that scope three is still a big challenge. So then you think of a small to midsize company that probably has, you know, a lot less influence over its, its supply network or its scope three. So from your experience, long preamble to work up to this, you know, are most companies just trying to get a handle on what they control versus, you know, Trying to understand what's going on outside their own four walls. You know, it's it's a super interesting question, right? One of the things like
1: that is interesting about it is sometimes it's it's easier to you know engage with those um, you know with your suppliers or the vendors supporting you um, because they may already be on the journey for somebody else, right? Um, yeah, so sometimes I, I you know, part of me says, uh, despite the fact that certainly, you know, the scope one and two side, I think you know, everybody's sort of on their unique journey. That's the interesting thing about this right now and where it's at. I think at some point um, we start to converge and and there becomes a lot of common commonality amongst amongst peers and in the space, but we're not quite there yet. But I do think sometimes when you're on a journey like this, where it's new, and you're trying to get your arms around it, sometimes working externally or with external partners who are already engaged with others and taking the journey um, gives you a leap, a, a leap that you wouldn't get um, sort of focusing on your own pieces internally because you don't know where to start, right? Um, so I do think that there is some merit to that uh, where because there are so many partners, as we discussed earlier, that are trying to do things because they're, um, the people that they're selling to are saying, hey, you know, I want to know where you're at on the journey. And so vicariously, you win if you're partnered with them, or if they're selling to you somewhere else. Um, On the other side of it, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's tough to say, like I said, every time, me personally, when I talk to different, different people in the sustainability journey, it really just depends on where they're at. Right, and where their their focus is or where the opportunity lies within their organization. Sometimes scope three is the is a is a really big piece, or in their in their vision, the easiest piece to go after. Sometimes they're saying, hey, we've got to clean up our own house first, make that a make that a priority and focus on it. But yeah, I think it just it really it really varies. But again, I go back to that. Sometimes it's easier to jump in and utilize the great work that others have done. And so that's why I sometimes I think um, reaching out to other to the vendors that you're working with, who are already started down that journey, is sometimes the easiest approach.
0: And I suppose also, um, even a you know a small to mid-sized company in terms of suppliers might be working with a global organization, you know, as as their supplier, where that that supplier may have resources that the uh, the customer may not because of just the mismatch in, in size between the uh, supplier and the customer.
1: Yeah, I, definitely. I mean, it's, um, it's amazing, right, the reach. And I'm sure you've seen it over the years, like the, the various size, small to large, reaching into these bigger companies. So yeah, there is. I think there is an opportunity there and, and a lot of times
0: they're able to take advantage of that. So. Right. Well, thanks, Dave. That's all the time we have today. I want to thank Dave Tuttle from Breakthrough for joining me. I hope you'll be back for our next episode. Until then, for Modern Materials Handling and Talking Materials Handling, I'm Bob Troublecock. And by the way, if you go to mmh.com, you can find some of the interviews that I've done with uh, global uh, sustainability leaders at companies like uh, at Walmart. So be sure to check that out. Dave, once again, really thanks for, uh, for joining us. Great conversation.
1: Bob, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Really enjoyed it.
0: We did too. Thanks. Talking Materials Handling is produced by Modern Materials Handling and Peerless Media. You can find Talking Materials Handling on mmh.com, on iTunes under SC24-7, or just Google SC24-7 Podcasts. We're on all the popular podcast platforms. For more information, be sure to visit mmh.com, and we hope you'll join us again for our next episode.